Welcome to Transpacific Stories, a podcast about the people behind the scholarship. I'm Helen Lowe. On this episode, Audrey Yu joined me as a co-host. Our guest, Gake Chang-Ku, is an Associate Professor of Film and Television Studies at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. Gake's research focuses on cinema and independent filmmaking in Malaysia, cosmopolitan spaces, race, religion, and the politics of identity, and multiculturalism in food. Gake chatted with us about her childhood in Penang, her early aspirations as a musician, which took her to Austin, Texas, her academic career, which took her to Vancouver, Canada, Singapore, Canberra in Australia, and most recently back to KL in Malaysia. I hope you will enjoy our reflections on home and identity, activism and academia, and our emotional connection to the sometimes taken for granted act of voting. Here's the episode. On the pod today, I have two guests. One is I welcome my co-host Audrey Yu. Hello, Audrey. Hi, Helen. Thank you for co-hosting with me. And our very special guest, Gake Koo. Hello, Gake. Hello, Helen. Hello, Audrey. <laughs> Hi, Gake. We are in beautiful Penang in the very colonial-looking Eastern and Orient Hotel. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just such a great pleasure to be able to interview Gake here because it's your hometown. I think you grew up in Penang. Yes, I did. I actually went to a school right, very close by to this hotel. The oldest convent light, uh, convent school on the island. Wow, yeah, we walk past this. It's right by the ocean. It's mm-hmm. very beautiful. Yeah. Is it still in operation now? It, it will be closing in a few years' time when this batch graduates because what's happened is it used to be a very preeminent school um, for, for girls. Even though you live quite far away, parents wanted to put their kids in this school. But we actually had quite a mixed um, bunch of girls in the school because you have people living in the city as well as people living a little bit away from the city. They're closing down the school because what happens is that people are moving out of the city. There are not many kids mm-hmm. now growing up in, in the urban heart of Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're closing the, the school, I think. And you did both your primary and your high school? I there. actually did my kindergarten. Wow. <laughs> and primary and secondary school at the Common Light Street. Most of your life is actually in that. Yeah, in that and so when my, when my dad said, oh, you know, I'm going to, if I had money, I would send you to one of these elite girls' schools in you know, all women's uh, universities or all you know, liberal arts universities in the US. I'm like, are you kidding me? How many years have I spent in an all-girls school? No way! It's so interesting because I think all three of us, even though we grew up in different Asian cities, went to a version of those schools, right? All-girls schools, religious. Mm -hmm. Was the language of instruction in English? No, it was probably in English until up until 1970. So you might know um, in 1969 there was the May 13th race riots or what was actually a class issue and an internal coup was, was sort of seen as a, a race riot. And after that they decided to give uh, Malays more preeminence in terms of culture, economics and everything. So, so Malay became the language of instruction. Well, it's very interesting because the, st- the teachers who taught us were probably not the ones who were trained in Malay in the beginning because um, in my mom's time, the good, the good 
students or the ones who wanted to be teachers, they were trained in this sort of teachers' college um, in that that had a, mm-hmm. a very kind of rigorous program from the UK, mm-hmm. and that's what they got. So my teachers, their English were was impeccable. I remember when we were in primary four, primary four, we were ten years old. The teacher would give us um, extra homework from books that were all about not just grammar but things like collective nouns. So we had homework that other girls in other classes and probably in other schools didn't have. Mm-hmm. So that our English were, was going to be much better than the average mm-hmm. student. Um, so it was sort of bil- in some way you grew up bilingual. Yeah. English and Malay. So yeah. sometimes the the teachers would would speak in a half Malay and half English. Right, right. When they'd be like. Uh, you take this integer, tola ini, you know, so it'd be like, you take this integer minus this, and then they go, satu, dua, tiga, so they might count in, in Malay, one, two, three, but then they'd be using, you know, some English words. And then periodically there'd be um, an announcement from the ministry saying, now we have to teach you in Malay. Uh, we have to use Malay as as the language, so they would try and, and mm-hmm. adhere to that. Well, I noticed when we were in the restaurant, though, you were speaking fluent Hokkien. So, is Hokkien the language of home? The Hokkien used to be, um, or might still be, with people of a certain age, um, the the Chinese dialect most widely spoken in Penang, and in the east, uh, in the northern part of Peninsular Malaysia. So as a girl going to a convent school in the 70s in Penang, what were your aspirations? What were your dreams? It's funny you should ask. Um, Because of Facebook, Uh I've had these reunions Uh with my classmates. So when you you arrive at Standard 6, this is before you go to secondary school, some girls will shift schools. If your school doesn't have a secondary school Uh component, you might just go to another school or if you continue to stay on. And then, so at these sort of seminal points or germinal points in our educational or our growing up life, there would be splits and whatnot. So that's when you mark it with an autograph book. Right. And we have these autograph books where the girls would say, friendship is forever and whatnot. Yeah, somebody brought their old autograph book or they had, they had digitalized uh, pictures of it. And then you kind of remind people about what they wrote and you had a good laugh over it. And one of my, one of my friends pointed out and she said, you did all the things you said you were going to do. And she showed me the page of stuff. Because you know you have to write your ambitions or what you want to do, your hopes of the future, what you want to achieve, and I think for many years as a kid, I wanted to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. I think like you know travel and all those kinds of, of things, like be write because I, I was an aspiring writer. Did you say you want to be a cultural studies scholar? No, what is that? What is that, Helen? So you were very artistically inclined, right? You wanted to write, you wanted to be a journalist. But then you ended up in music conservatory. I played the piano for many years. Unlike other parents who had to force their kids, I didn't really need pushing. I mean, I would go and do my practice and all that. So I, I went quite far and then my... My dad really just wanted me to t- 
get a degree in, in not even like a bachelor's but just get one of those um, Trinity licentiate royal schools mm-hmm. certificate so that I quickly make money and I even have to pay taxes because I could I didn't have to declare oops I hope this is not gonna play <laughs> but that was his plan for me that I would just teach piano at home and make all this money and I'm like, oh no, I would have it. I'd be, you know, I would have to teach these little kids who didn't want to be there piano, and I would never meet anybody, be- and I would just grow old and be this Spencer that or not that I've become, <laughs> <laughs> and stay at home and just deal with little kids. I thought I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate that idea. So I'm like, look, I don't feel comfortable. I feel like we would be ripping people off. You know, to to take money from from parents and kids and for this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I should get a degree. If you want me to do this, we'll have to do it properly. You, I should go get a degree. After from five, my mom determ- was determined that I should go somewhere good. And at that point, Singapore had uh, a, a a program where you could your parents could pay a donation uh-huh. to the government <laughs> so that you could get into a junior college. Uh-huh. So I went to Tomasic Junior College where they had the MEP, it was the first time they ran the music elective program where I took music, obviously current history, history and literature. Which is literature is like, oh yeah, great, I love this. Uh, history was something completely new, current history was completely new to me. And then um, and so, music. Yeah, it's a six-form college, right? So yeah. yeah. So you did your A-level subject there. Yeah. yeah so I, I did my A-level subject there, and then because of the timing, I, I and I also I didn't do well enough to get into NUS, and at that point NUS didn't have a music degree. So you're like, well, what's the point? You know, my parents have paid this donation, and the year after they lowered the price of the donation. So I was like, just you know, <laughs> leaking money away from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I came back and I'm like, okay, I'll just do some part-time work in this very hotel before it was renovated. Wow. I played piano. Play piano yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, they already had an in-house band. They were kind of an institution. They'd been here for years. I was a part-time waitress during the breakfast shifts. <laughs> and then on Thursday and Friday nights, I played piano before the big band on. This place that we've chosen to do the interview in uh-huh. is very historical for me. So not only did I work here between university mm-hmm. and, and college, but this is also where they had, um, there was an audition. Well, I mean, when I used to, I used to glamorize your life in Texas. I think when I thought of you in, in music school, I thought I had like, Fame, you know, I thought you'd no, be like... No, I was bad. <laughs> I was bad. But what was it like? So it's not at all like fame, no, being in music school. No, no, because actually there were so many students who were way better than me. I, I'm just one of those accidents because I, I no longer have it because I haven't played the piano for so long and my, these fingers are all frozen. But I was, I guess, quite naturally talented because... On the and but just she just got used to me and she didn't really put much time into me. So I had very good grades, like distinction, distinction. And then when it, when I reached that grade eight, which is the highest, I failed everything except sight reading. So yes, you're naturally good. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm naturally good in that in the sense that I could I could like improvise, and then everything else I failed. 
because I wasn't managed and supervised properly. So I was very, very shocked and very brokenhearted. But never mind, switched piano teachers and things picked up. And then things didn't quite pick up, but that's okay because the teacher who was supposed to submit the, you know, for, for me to do the exam, uh, forgot to submit or had some problem. And so I was late. And then she, I did the Trinity instead of the Royal Schools. Anyway. Eventually, I did so well that I was like, shortlisted to audition. And then lo and behold, the same guy I saw as I was waiting to get into the audition was the same white-haired British examiner who failed me. How can you forget? <laughs> I went to the bathroom, I washed my face. I'm like, you can do it, you can do it. He won't recognize you, it's okay. He wouldn't recognize you, right? No, so, he wouldn't. How yeah. would he know? So what happened at the audition? <laughs> I, I did... I don't know. I, I'm never confident about these things. So it turned out that I... They... It was just... It was me and this boy from Ipoh. And he was younger than me. But it was... But he was also ahead of me in some way. So that it would be his last round for the audition. This is the story that was told to me to make me feel better or whatever. I don't know. But I didn't get... And they, they gave it to the boy. So that was my last, last chance to be a real musician. No, no, it wasn't. But, so I didn't get to Britain. And then that's when I decided I would try to go to the U, U.S. Yeah, right, I see, right. Uh, so it, see, it is like fame. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was crazy. So then I went to the U.S. And then I, after two years in Austin, there were all these, there were all these girls that were like crazy mad about piano I mean they practiced all the time and I couldn't understand that you said there were these super genius Taiwanese girls yeah, right Taiwanese yeah these Americans there were two of them they'd be like oh I'm getting a what do you call it um, RSI I'm getting RSI <laughs> tennis you know tennis elbow whatever wrist pain I'm like why why it's because they practice and I didn't <laughs> but it sounded like you never were dreaming to become a concert pianist anyway Right, I, you just I would yeah. freeze up and no, I mean I, I did it, but I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what my fingers are doing, I'm just doing it. <laughs> but that didn't because it wasn't your dream. Your dream was more rightly, you know, to write or become a journalist. No, well, I was always creative, so mm -hmm. I loved when I was in Austin. I took so the degree there is really, really great. You know, mm -hmm. it's a very well-rounded degree. It's not like you go to you go straight into a kind of conservatoire, conservatory where you only did piano and music. Mm -hmm. So the first two years, you, you had a very broad liberal arts uh -huh. um, background. You know, I could take like Anthropology 101, mm -hmm. I could take you know, the Dinosaur Course, which is supposed to be easy, <laughs> which you know, I didn't think was that great. Um, you had to take math, you had to take history, so I did like the philosophy of science or something like this. So you could take tons of things, and it took a lot of mu um, English literature um, mm -hmm. modules or, or, or courses. So by the time I got to year three, that was when you'd run out of all these electives. You mm -hmm. had to only take piano. And I took composition, mm -hmm. which I really like. Um, so I, I was creative that way. So I, I'm like, oh my god, I have to practice for six hours. I keep falling asleep in the rehearsal room. <laughs> And you realize that that's the musician's life, not the one for you, yeah. So at that time, 
did you think about returning home to teach piano no. <laughs> as your father was no. or this was my escape plan. This was what your escape, you yeah. About? <laughs> yeah. So so then what happened? Like, um, how did you get from? I think your next step is where we met. I think in UBC. was your next stop in yeah. Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. So you went from Austin to doing your graduate degree. So I in I, Vancouver. Yeah. So I from Austin. Um, I was told by uh, my Shakespeare teacher who, who Kate Frost who was a phenomenal teacher mm-hmm. apparently quite conservative but at that point we all just admired her she was so entertaining and mm-hmm. she just made she just brought Shakespeare to life and she loved food too so she's like oh James Beard you're in Vancouver you have to look him up you know, all that kind of stuff so she said why don't you apply for you know to a Canadian university and so I applied to UBC and they had fellowship and I got the fellowship I applied to other places that accepted me but had no scholarship so mm-hmm. I couldn't afford to go to Tish oh. um, you know I couldn't <laughs> afford to go York. to Hawaii <laughs> you know. well between New York Hawaii and Vancouver yeah. Vancouver. yeah so that's how I got to Vancouver because uh-huh. I had the scholarship yeah. so you were sad to leave Austin I oh no I was it was Gonna be an adventure, yeah. Mm-hmm, to go to Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. You, I remember you were quite active in Vancouver uh, with a lot of the activist circle. How, how did, how did that come to be? How did a, you know, more creative musical, you know, the one man who really, really wow, that was a me. man. <laughs> yeah, it's um the guy who started the Asian American. Um, he died. I was very hard. I was very sad to hear he died. Um, Jim Wong Chu. Oh, Jim Wong Chu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I. If it wasn't for Jim, I wouldn't be doing those readings. I He'd be like, "Come on, you can do it." I'm like, "He's like, okay, I'm putting you in." I'm like, "Oh my god, I have to write something new." And because of him, I wrote something new. Right. <laughs> because of Jim Wong Chu, at that time, there was this whole circle of the Asian Canadian writers yeah. workshop. And so, were you involved with Not- that crowd? Not really. I don't know how, um, but I somehow, you know, yeah. It was because of him in the May May month um, that I managed to would write uh-huh. because he was very supportive and very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were doing your MA at UBC. Yep. Yeah. I did my MA and then I applied to do the PhD and I stayed on you to do the right. PhD. Yeah. What What was your life in Vancouver like? Oh, it's very. <laughs> It's very mixed. So I, I, um, I had all these activist friends from Commercial Drive, because my ex-boyfriend uh, was an activist um, and kind of an anarchist. So yeah, so it was through him that I met all these other activists, and they were kind of people who were not just leftists or or anarchists, but working on different issues. So again, I had a I had a I had Latin American friends because I lived on Commercial Drive on on Fourth. This is almost right on right on the drive in the corner of this um, old apartment building. We lived in the basement, and we had so so there was a laundry just around the corner mm-hmm. on on um, Commercial Drive itself, owned by a um, woman from El Salvador, mm-hmm. Areli so Are, uh, Rodriguez. So she's a really good friend. Um, and through her, I met all these other people. There, there were people like who were teachers, but they would do things like run tours to Ecuador 
while they're doing um, fair trade coffee mm -hmm. and they would take people down to do education tours around fair trade coffee and train people mm -hmm. about that. Um, so you were hanging out with anarchists and activists in Vancouver? Yeah, um, that time, okay, so I was a master's student and I think things got really interesting and I think I only became radicalized as a master's student because you know, remember there was the battle in Seattle? You remember how they had the leaders summit in Vancouver and, and UBC? Maybe you might not have been at SFU yet, at UBC. They, um, they, the, there's, a, there's one part where the leaders, including Suharto, would drive past facing the, the beach and stuff. And the law students put, wanted to put signs up saying, you know, down with dictators or whatever, and they took them all down. And so the law students were saying, you know, this is, an, th this is you know, impinging on our right to, to democracy, what's going on, you know, how can you do this? Um, and so that was when I became radicalized. This mm -hmm. is where Jagit Singh, Oh. He, you know, he, he. This is when he, where, where he came out, when he kind of rose to fame, and stuff like that. So yeah, and that time too, the some of the friends I knew from my, from my um, boyfriend, my then boyfriend, he had Indonesian friends who were belong who belonged to E10, the East Timor Network. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they were also activating then because Suharto was coming. But you were already, your thesis at that time, the PhD project was on Southeast Asian cinema. On Malaysian, yeah. on Malaysian alone. Um, it was quite, it was, it took some convincing. I mean, I, it took some convincing on my part for my, not Snager was okay, Snager was on board, I think, but Marjorie was a bit, Marjorie Fee was a bit more, um, she was like, are you sure? Because, I think if you did that project, that kind of project, interdisciplinary, individual interdisciplinary um, studies program, the IISP, which I think was a really good program <laughs> because it allowed you to customize you your, your, own yeah, your program, you know. And I remember when, when I got in stage, I said, well, what do you want to do, make a film? It was that kind of open-ended, you can do whatever you want type of program. And I wanted to study Malaysian film, or what, what, whatever that was there, Malaysian film and literature. And so I needed people who could understand Malay at least, so this is where Tinika came in. I needed somebody who could understand film, and this is where I got Jackie Levitine from SFU. And then I needed kind of poco, uh, post-colonial background, and that's where I got Sneja and Marjorie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That this is when all of our worlds collided, right? Did you know, uh, Audrey, did you know Gake from that time? No, I, I didn't know Gake from that time. I only met Gake in Australia as part of the Asian Australian study circuit. And through Jackie? No. Through Jackie Lowe. Through Jackie Lowe. And um, then subsequently um, at ARI, at the Asia Research Institute, uh -huh. where, when you were based. Yeah. So in Beng, Beng Huat introduced oh. uh, us and your work um, on Malaysian cinema firstly, and then after that you were very instrumental in this part of the world, starting 
up the Association for the Study of Southeast Asian Cinemas. Studies, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. So, so that would be your life, your post postgraduate life. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Were you planning on? I mean, I guess after the PhD, most people leave. You know where where they do their PhD. But did you ever want to stay in Vancouver? I did. Oh. I applied, and I think I eventually got um, permanent residence. And I was teaching uh, Bahasa Indonesia. I was teaching Indonesian language, um, Southeast Asian literature, at, at the University of Victoria. Ah. But only as a as a you know as a sessional lecturer. Yeah. So it wasn't um, it wasn't ideal that way. And I I thought I found Victoria kind of a racist place. I I had a breakdown. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. So um, really did not like. I mean, Victoria compared to Vancouver is so much. I was more just very lonely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I was very lonely, and it it was kind of a, it was a very white town. Uh, I had after that, I subsequently found that there were very good friends and good people. They were from my activist group. Um, I had kind of two different activist groups, like the, the Palestine group, mm-hmm. uh, and. And then the, and then the kind of anti-racism group. Because of course, when I went, it was two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. September eleventh happened, and immediately the kind of racism thing started to come up. And that was when I met anti-racist um, activist friends like Roshni. I'm not sure if she's if she's all that active now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her partner, Fern, and yeah, and. Yeah, it was an interesting time. Mm-hmm. So you stayed in Victoria for a little bit, but then I guess that you got Audrey mentioned. I applied to Ari. Ari. Yeah, right? I applied to Ari, and actually it was a friend had emailed me the the um, call, and I'll always be grateful for that. I think it was actually a friend from UBC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was for listeners. This is the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore, right? That's right. So, so after so many years away, uh, after being in Austin and then all these years in Vancouver, you su- you suddenly find yourself back in Southeast Asia. Yeah. yeah. How how did that feel? That would have been t- early aughts, early aughts. Two thousand three, two thousand four. Um, it didn't feel foreign. Yeah, it didn't feel foreign to me. I think, I think I was always very Malaysian. Like you can't mm. take the Malaysian out of me. <laughs> I, I wasn't somebody who sort of you know didn't put that behind me and wasn't interested and mm. wanted to be fully American or fully Canadian or whatever. I I wasn't really all that interested in that. Um, I was one of those people who still followed the politics uh, back home mm-hmm. because actually my work is about Malaysia. Mm. And I think Chobing Huat will say, you know, I don't know what your chances are like, you know, you should expand, you should like work beyond Malaysia. I'm like, there's so much to do in Malaysia that that you, you need to work on. I need to work on it. Or well, maybe I'm not really working in Malaysia now because, <laughs> well, I'm following the durian and I'm looking at Korean migrants in Malaysia. That's not very Malaysian, but um, you learn something about yourself when you do these things. So you got the Canberra job when yeah. you were at NUS, right? How did did you were you happy about it? Did, did you feel like going to Australia? Canberra? Where's Canberra? 
<laughs> that was the reaction, eh? Well, I, I, first of all, remember I had permanent residence in Canada. Mm. So the aim was that I would go back there. But mm. I also knew it was very difficult to find jobs in Canada. All my friends were struggling. They were working as sessionals here and there and everywhere. And it was really hard for people to get jobs. So I kept looking and then this Australian one opened up. So I applied and then I got it. And then when I was there, I actually sneaked out for a job interview in University of Calgary. Oh. <laughs> with the hopes that I would go back and yeah, get my permanent, yeah. you know, and, and, and stay on. But I didn't get the job in Calgary. But So that was fine. So I, I stayed on. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, but it's the same department as Aruna. Um, Aruna? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I think. It was a film department. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. a tough interview. But so I didn't, I didn't get it, and so I stayed on in Australia um, for seven years. I would have continued to stay on there, but uh, they were starting to restructure. Mm-hmm. So there was a bit of a squeeze and micromanagement at the at my department, and so and you were I in left. Gender studies, right? Yeah, there were three of us. There were only three of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is Australian National University yeah. in Canberra. Yeah. And you're, are you, you were all uh, in the gender studies program or were you cross-appointed? No. Oh, you, oh. Yeah, I was, I, was in, I, I was in gender studies. Like Helen and I, I'm like, you know what? I think the students are very interested in this whole post-wave, post-fem mm-hmm. thing. Let's do that. So we came out with a class called Sex, Sex Sexuality and... You know, it was just going to be like a fun course, mm-hmm. you know. And there were people very interested in taking the class. We couldn't offer it every year. We offered it once every two years or something, and it was very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so we co-taught that. So she did like the week on on um, prostitution, sex work. She did the whole yeah, the whole. What What was living in Canberra like? Because it's both kind of close to Asia. Or, or at least my impression of Australia is compared to Canada, yep. it seems to have a lot more ties uh, in terms of you know university initiatives and all of that. Um, and at the same time, it's the capital, and I think capital cities tend to be have you know character of its own. So, did you enjoy living in Canberra? Uh, we had a lot of dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think. Um, yeah, actually, I, I benefited a lot from being at ANU. I think I was very productive there. Uh, and it was usually... Canberra is kind of a, like a little academic haven. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to explain much to people. Mm-hmm. Um, Singapore, Malaysia, they kind of know where it is. You know, you didn't have to tell people where it is in Asia in relation mm-hmm. to... yeah. So, so, and also the people I, I was hanging out with were like Jeremy Barme, who's a China mm-hmm. scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I had very good friends who were coming out like Anna Dragolovic, uh, who was working on Indonesia and Holland. She was looking at uh, Dutch women who went to Indonesia and they, were, they would get married to Indonesian men. And what was it like then for Indonesians? these sort of mixed um, mm-hmm. mixed marriages and the moving from Indonesia to Holland mm-hmm. uh, to the Netherlands those kinds of things um, there were interesting people who came through like Turil 
Habakon who works on Thai mm. politics, like amazing stuff. But because of the way ANU was, I mean, sometimes people left. Mm. And then you're like, well, half the time, towards the end, when I knew I was leaving, I had one semester, I gave, I handed in my resignation. And so I just had to wait out that semester. And teaching was always good for the most part. You know, from at the bottommost point, teaching was the only thing that saved you. Mm. Like students, you know, it's not all the stupid admin stuff and you're not doing enough, you're doing too much, you're not, you know, all kinds of all this stuff. Actually, teaching was what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, have they forgotten? Um, yeah, but there are lots of people doing very interesting work um, mm-hmm. in Asia, on Asia, mm-hmm. um, and I learned a lot from them. When you decided to leave, um, were you intending to come back to Asia or you were open to any kind of jobs? I um, applied to only one place. Uh, um, I applied to University of Nottingham in Malaysia and the first thing I wanted to know was is there going to be censorship because mm-hmm. I work in Malaysia mm-hmm. and I, my colleague, my current colleague he writes, he's v- very critical of the government he writes for the alternative media mm-hmm. and he was there mm-hmm. so I figured if he can be there then I can be there mm-hmm. you know, so that's why I, I applied to Nottingham Do you have more Freedom writing, because it's a British university that is in Malaysia as opposed to, say, teaching in a Malaysian university? Yeah, yeah. I think so. So you're more protected in numbers? I don't know about protection, <laughs> but, but yeah. But, so you do ways. feel like you have total academic freedom? Yeah. 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 So it's a homecoming after how many years? 20, over 20, 20 years. Over 20 Again, very similar to Audrey, who also did like homecoming after 20 years away. Um, I think it was quite emotional for Audrey. Was it emotional for you? (laughs) Mm. Yes and no. Ah, yes and no. (laughs) I don't think it's emotional because I had been coming back and I think I felt connected Mm. to the place because I always read up on the politics and I would come back. I mean, not as often in Canada. I maybe came back once every two years. Um, in Australia, I came back once a year at least. I, it's just home. Hmm. So it was kind of easy to just settle back in. You know, it's it's so. Maybe I'm an idealist. My friends like, oh, you came back because of that. He said, why? You're a real idealist. <laughs> like I never voted my whole life. And I voted for the first time in 2012. Mm. So all the kind of anti-government bursi, um elections, these are asking for clean and fair elections. Um, I helped to organize them in Canberra. And so it was always kind of observing Malaysian politics from afar. And so I was determined. So the first time I went to vote, was very meaningful for me. I mean, I'm, I wasn't young anymore. I was like in my 40s, you know, first time voting, yeah. And that felt good. Yeah, I know, you know, we can read all these philosophers and whatnot saying, you know, voting is so mainstream, it's not radical, it's not whatever, but in, in some places it actually counts. Uh-huh. Um, it's not the only thing you should do, but it is one of the things you must do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So can I ask you a bit more to talk about what home means to you in the context of because your life you've traveled a lot you've been to uh, Singapore um, US Canada back to Singapore then to Australia and then back to Malaysia right so uh, and then you talk about homecoming now um, and um, so maybe to backtrack a little bit in the context of I'm very interested in how you negotiate your Chineseness in uh, Malaysia and in a convent school where you learned English and Malay and uh, then subsequently your own skin color in a white country and also now back in Malaysia as well what is home so in in that context right um, uh, so I guess you know so you talk about home as being able to vote I haven't voted at all in my life mm-hmm. um, Singapore elections is going to be in a few weeks March March oh yeah maybe a few months yes yeah. in March so I will need to register and look forward to voting for the first time in my life as well um, and you better do the registering fast <laughs> yes 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 but you know it's always uh, so we talk about home in the context of rights and entitlements because of one's ability to vote um, but also home is about being being at home you know like what you're kind of in your skin being at home so um, and I was just very very curious about what 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 does it mean to be uh, Chinese in in Malaysia uh, Chinese in in Vancouver in Canberra even as a Malaysian Chinese in uh, Chinese-dominated Singapore as well. I feel... So, so all this all this sort of research I do, all the work I do, I think it's always intersectional in some... It's always hybrid, it's always mixed. So, like, being Chinese, I don't really feel... I want to say I feel Malaysian. So I like being in a place where you get in a taxi and sometimes you have to speak three languages before you figure out the right one to use to communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, I like being in a bus or going to the mall and hearing different languages that I around me. I mean, sure, you can hear that in Vancouver now, but it's the sense that we are all Malaysian. We're all in this together. Um, so that... that, that Ability to vote isn't so much having the the franchise and being able to vote as a privilege. It's more about being able to make change. That you know, so the whole activist thing is still coming out. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's the I want to be able to change something, and maybe this little vote can do something. Maybe I sound um, very naive and and optimistic in saying that. No, I think. You know, I mean Hong Kong, Hong Kong my well, god well, exactly that right yeah. like I think I'm, I'm usually also surrounded by people who would say oh voting you know what, what it doesn't do very much blah 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 but then I looked at young people new generation in Hong Kong who are willing to die <laughs> for having that and I mm-hmm. think it's exactly as you said it's not just voting right it's about that the feeling and the capacity to be able to change something, yeah. Um, so maybe you have to. Be, we have to be older <laughs> to truly understand that, or maybe when you've lived for a long time without that ability, 
right? I think, um, yeah. But but so Audrey, do you feel differently about your homecoming? That does it excite you that you can vote <laughs> in a few weeks? Yeah, I, I look forward to being able to. It's really to, the first time ever to cast my vote, mm. um, but. Um, yeah, I, I've always um, felt very proud to be a Singaporean. And for me to be able to say that that is my way of marking out the distinction of my own Chineseness mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, say, what being Chinese is like in Australia or even what Chinese is like now in this part of the world. And usually when people say that, it's that whole influx of the PRC. So to mark out my own distinction as I would say I'm Singaporean mm -hmm. so um, but when I my own homecoming as well, I think Helen interviewed me in the first couple of months when I arrived and that was I was still settling in so it was very traumatic for me to completely in culture shock uh, but then as much as uh, it was culture shock for me I like you I kept kept up with all the political changes and all the, the I was I was away for 30 years 30 years of development in wow. Singapore yeah. and um, but um, I felt very easy moving around in Singapore mm -hmm. um, because I fitted in I was mm -hmm. I was the dominant race mm -hmm. so in a way I was invisible I could I could go from A to B in a taxi in an MRT mm -hmm. without any harassment yeah. and that freedom the, the, just the basic freedom of being able to move on the street that was very uh, exhilarating for me it was I felt so refreshing as opposed to Australia as opposed to Australia where I would always be on my guard I w wouldn't know who was going to s scream at me from across the road mm -hmm. or throw something at me so um, yeah so homecoming in a way is also tied to just basic freedom to be able to move on the street mm. Mm. Yeah. see I, f I because uh, I'm Malaysian because I can speak Hokkien Singapore I feel at home at. I could I don't speak Mandarin but I'm hoping that you know they can understand Hokkien or English so so in a way I sympathize with the kind of average Singaporean who feel that that country is changing because the population is changing if there are more Mandarin um, from China, from mainland China, who might not speak English, come and then they they don't they're not familiar again. So yeah, they they might find it alienating. So I I sympathize that. So I I I feel at home in Singapore because people speak the language because I'm familiar with the language and I can speak Malay. So I'm I'm fine with that. I, the only thing I'm not fine with is that the landscape keeps changing. Um, but yeah. So it does sound like there is this Southeast Asian. Well, is there a term for Singapore Malaysian? I mean, I have to confess, like outside of Singapore Malaysia, we often think the two together. It's a bit like when I have Taiwanese friends who who's tell me they think America Canada for them is the same, and they have the same word for it even. Yeah. And I have to confess, it's a little bit like that with Malaysia and Singapore as well. Um, and that that experience of being able to get on the taxi and it, you figure out which language you speak for what that seems to me something very both Singapore and Malaysia, <laughs> and because you have multiple official languages and, and a, dialects 
and and dialects. So in KL, because I don't speak Cantonese, mm-hmm. um, and I don't speak Mandarin, um, it's very it's a kind of relief to find people who can speak Hokkien. And actually, there num the numbers wise, there are quite a few Hokkien's there, mm-hmm. but. You know, like in the market, I'd be like, "Oh, she can understand Hokkien. I'll go buy from her." Yeah, right, right, right. right. You yeah. know, yeah. But is it a? It's a kind of freedom then, right? Because you're not defined by one language. And yeah. Some sense of that you can get to figure it out. No, no, I think it's not the freedom. I I feel what I feel is that there's an accepting, there's an openness and ex and acceptance of multilinguality, mm-hmm. which means then you're open to difference, cultural difference. Mm-hmm. There's no speak language. Why don't you speak language? Why don't you go back to your country? That kind of mm-hmm. hostility um, to to multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. I don't have to face that. Mm-hmm. So being, be not being able to understand that moment of you know incommensurability, that moment is very much routine in this part right. of the world. <laughs> so you could have in a conversation. A bit of Malay, a bit of Singlish, a bit of this and that. There'll be some parts of the conversation that one invariably would not understand if you don't speak mm-hmm. the language. But that's okay. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's the a whole idea that it's okay. Yeah, you know? yeah. And yeah. that does seem very specific to this region. Yeah. Um, so, are you going to stay home? <laughs> well, I guess my my biggest fear coming back was that it would mean I would never be able to travel. Um, which then I comfort myself that I it might not be like this, because I have friends who, like I have a friend who's a historian and he he gets invited to go and speak in different parts of the world all the time. So I figured, well, if he can travel, then I'd probably be able to travel. So that was my main concern that I wouldn't be able to travel anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah, but you have been, right? I've seen yeah, you in different parts of the world. Yeah, thanks <laughs> yeah. to my university. Which, I mean, that's part of the... Which I hope they'll never, like, withdraw. They'll be, like, getting more money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, That is... So, thank you, Gig, so much for taking us through this very adventurous um, multiple phases of your life. You're welcome. Um, It's been fun. And thanks also for showing us around and showing us all the good food and and thank you for taking us to your clan home, the Kukongsi oh, clan. You're home. welcome. <laughs>